Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. All right. This morning, I am so excited to have one of my favorite people. I mean, I'm so lucky on the show. I get to interview my favorite people, but I'd have to say that Jana Wells is probably one of my favorite, favorite people. If I had to put her in a category, and I'm not going to be embarrassed to say that if I had a girl crush, which maybe I do, and I won't admit to, Shauna Wells would be my gal. (laughs) You are flattering me. (laughs) Well, I mean, come on. You're smart. You're creative. You're funny. You're brilliant at what you do. You're so many things, which we're going to talk about all of them. But for all of you that don't yet know Jana, she is first and foremost, a kind human being. In her world, she does many things, one of which is she is an auctioneer. She's a very well-known auctioneer, a very successful auctioneer, and she works primarily with fundraising for nonprofits. She has a heart for helping as a fundraising ambassador, helping nonprofits reach their missions through raising funds, raising awareness, raising friends. And I first met Jonah, I want to say, Oh, I don't know, 15, 16, I mean, a long time ago, 16 years ago, she was an auctioneer at one of the auctions for a client that I was working for at the time, Cascade AIDS Project. And so I was helping do the PR for the event. Jonna Wells was the auctioneer. And it was so funny. I remember leaving <laughs> that auction saying, I don't have any money in my pockets, but if I did, I'd be giving Jonna Lynn. <laughs> I'd be digging in deep. She had me digging in my pockets. So Anyway, without further ado, Jana has taken time out of a very busy schedule going on right now to say hello and chat with me. So thank you. I'm so happy well, you're here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a longtime big fan of yours as well. I admire you and find just continuous inspiration in what you share with the world at large creatively and um, uh, you're just a powerhouse and it's been a pleasure like really to, to know you all of these years and kind of just see the different avenues that you've you've been able to travel through as a, a writer as a creator as a, a you know your own agent of change and, and I'm excited to, to be with you today. Yeah we've gone through several incarnations. Um, I should also say that we you know I was very honored that Jana was asked to be the auctioneer for the MS auction for the Oregon chapter, the multiple sclerosis uh, gala event. And then when she was asked to do that, they asked her if she knew anybody who would be willing to MC and host. And she said the first person that she thought of was me because not just because I do have MS, but because of the words. So we have this love of words, this mutual connection that I don't know what it is that you get it. (laughs) You get it. And I get yours. You know, I read some of the things that you write and I get yours as well. And we're going to talk about words because that's important to both of us. So with everything you have right now, thinking of the world, maybe let's just start with the most obvious thing, being an auctioneer. How has it been to navigate working with so many nonprofits who have had fundraisers and events and so much of what you do is event-driven and helping them raise funds. So what are you, how are you adjusting? How are you adapting? Tell me a little bit about that landscape right now. Well, you know, it's funny, like what comes to mind is that notion that time is relative, you know, Mm -hmm. and even though we've all been on this collective journey really here, you know, stateside, 
um, since early March, it feels like so much more time has passed between March and July 8th. I mean, right. it just feels like an entire universe, you know, has has developed, has expanded and contrasted in relation to these experiences that we're all participating in professionally and personally. And so when I when I look to, you know, what that's been like as a, a fundraising auctioneer, um, it's been uniquely challenging, but at the same time, it's been just as challenging as any other, I'm sure, profession that has had to, to reinvent and reframe and hit, you know, not only pause, but really full stop, you know, and really reassess, okay, well, what's our scope of work look like? What are, what are our scope of services? And knowing that, we as a community can't gather together. What what does that mean? Since that's really the the premise of of these fundraising events. You know, so many nonprofit organizations rely, in some instances, a, a huge percentage of their operating budget is is exclusively reliant on these live fundraising events. And so when we take that out of the mix, you know, there's a lot of a scarcity, there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of fear um, for how these, you know, agents of change and these pillars within our society who are steadfast supporters for making tomorrow a better day, like how can they continue to to move and evolve and in, into the next chapter of their their services. And so th- there, there was really like, for me personally, this need to just really hit that full stop. And after to be honest, like a period of mourning, which honestly, and I'll also say that I don't think I'm alone in feeling that, you know, I mean, this is an experience that really like our humanity, like hasn't, hasn't participated in before, you know, there's been certainly global events that have shook the core of, of humanity, but this is something that in some way, shape or form, we as a global community are experiencing. And so there was just this I think this this means, you know, what? Wow, there's this is this is intense, and this is really um, going to change the face of our communities for a long time. And so, after I moved through kind of those steps of my own kind of grieving process, then there was really just this expedited need to, okay, here's where we're at, and how are we going to rapidly evolve? And that rapid evolution, I think, has been kind of like a term that has really stuck with me because I needed to do a deep dive into my professional archives of 17 years of professional fundraising experience and figure out, okay, well, how do we take elements of live events and bring them into the virtual arena to ensure continued fundraising success. And what does that look like? Because this is really, I mean, even though there's different virtual software platforms that have been available for fundraising for many years, Mm -hmm. organizations have never had to rely on them exclusively. And how do you how do you build community in that virtual platform, which is really the touchstone of these live events? How do you celebrate that? How do you create that connection that really only a live event can bring? And having to do that deep dive into that professional archive of experience has been intense, but rewarding too, creatively, because it allows for new opportunity. And that's what I was wondering, because I would say that there is a grief period. And because you take your work so personally and because you know you and I have both run in the circles of the nonprofit community we care about the organizations that are doing amazing things in our community how did you as a person as an individual make room for your grief with having a healthy respect and understanding of this collective grief because I think we both felt that. I even wrote an article about it, that these waves of grief, that's that's what we're feeling. So how were you able to honor your own and not take on the entirety of this community grief because there was so much? And I know it's, you know, for me, I could say, I know you're a strong person, but what does that really mean? So how did you dig in and what was it that helped you through that? You know, I'll be honest, um, there were some dark days and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, just some days where my, you know, awareness of what not only my community was experiencing, my, my clients were experiencing, you know, in the nonprofit community and their struggles to move forward and that ripple effect of what that meant the services that they're providing. And then from that global community perspective, um, you know, Mm -hmm. what that felt like. And then the grief that I would feel objectively when I would think of my daughter who's nine Mm -hmm. and 
what her perspective on this, you know, experience has been and how this is shaping all of the littles throughout the world right now who've been mm-hmm. removed from their trusted circles, their academic setting, their playtime, their after-school activities right. and what that means to them psychologically and socially right. and There's so much into this. We have There's no so way much. of knowing <laughs> Yeah. And so, I mean, I'll, like I said, there were some dark days where like that felt compounded where I was like, oh my God, you know, this is so, this is so much. There were days of a lot of crying before we, before we all kind of moved into this, not even, and I don't refer to it as like phase one or phase two, but before we moved into kind of this next phase of reckoning and awareness of what needed to come next there wasn't a lot of time really in the that pause it, I mean there was a tiny one but there wasn't really enough time I don't there is the grief and then you got to rev up and then you're like okay let's go it's exactly. like that it was like jumping out of an airplane I you remember know? that was mm-hmm. like I had maybe a two-week window well actually I mean kind of going back as a skosh you know when the mandate went into effect in Oregon in particular for a banning on public gatherings consisting of more than 25 people it was March 11th I believe and on March 14th I had a fundraising event and on March 11th that morning I said we need to be prepared for um, uh, you know the exploration of a, a, a virtual event or rescheduling because I I highly anticipate that the governor will not allow for us to gather on March 14th. And there was, you know, kind of a lot of of surprise by my comments because it was thought that, oh no, we're going to be okay. Such was the case later that night, it was established that we weren't going to be able to to gather for this, you know, 450, 500 plus person event um, (laughs) here in Portland. And so we were off and running with less than three, three days to produce this virtual, the first for me, exclusively virtual event. And so after that, there was, that's kind of when the grief set in because I had a little bit of a window, a two week window of what would have been my spring break schedule during the spring fundraising season before I had the next event. But all events subsequently thereafter were on pause. Everybody hit the pause button. Most organizations were reflecting on whether or not they needed to cancel their event and some were considering rescheduling. And I was just kind of left reeling thinking, oh my God, this is exclusively, you know, my profession. And and if I can't create these opportunities for people to gather and celebrate a cause that's near and dear to them, what am I going to do? So it was, it was really terrifying in so many different ways. And so again, there were a lot of dark days, a lot of crying, a lot of walking, a lot of running, a lot of loud music in my headphones. (laughs) Yeah, we talked that time. I also want to point out the contrast and the flip side and the juxtaposition of this, because you and I both experienced it and we had a really beautiful conversation, uh, might've been in that two week period where the reality of just being in the space of being Mm -hmm. present in a way that you and I have both not really known, given that we both work so much and you especially have a huge schedule. So there was this pause. And I remember that there was even a slight tone of simple joy. I don't want to say that we were happy during the darkness and there weren't tears, but we did have a conversation about the flip side and the beauty and how interesting it was that there was this other thing happening that we didn't know or couldn't have anticipated being able to do chalk with your daughter on the sidewalk or you know there were so many simple things blowing bubbles or whatever it was that was happening in that time where you were spending time with your daughter and you had a chance to breathe yeah there there was definitely I think in tandem, I was experiencing this fear that I couldn't articulate and this sadness that I couldn't articulate. And then at the same time, these moments where I had um, a schedule that had opened up and gave me room to breathe, you know, and gave my family room to, to be together. Because, you know, as are, is such the case with so many families, you know, we're a family unit with two working parents, you know, my husband's a social worker and I work full time and, you know, our daughter had been in school and lots of after school activities. And so there was always kind of that quote hustle, hit it all and make it all happen. And so there was certainly these moments where I would, was very keenly aware of how grateful I was to be present and to have those, those moments with her, you know, in particular to just kind of 
allow for the day to unfold as it as it will, you know, and that's yeah. a beautiful thing too. I mean, I understood to say the paradox, everything was alive at the same time. I mean, everything was side by side. It was, it was really incredibly wild in that few week window. And something else that came out of that is I started teaching the writing classes yes, you did. that I do on Tuesday night, uh, a free online Zoom writing class and you joined in and I knew you were an artist. I've seen your paintings and I have seen some of what you've created, but we would gather online and we would do these writing classes and I offered them to kind of work through some of those conflicts because the juxtapositions of what we were feeling, thinking, doing, being in a world crumbling around us was insurmountable and also in a, in a I don't know if the right word is awesome, but the magnitude of it was just so much and there was so much to see about humanity, I think, that was coming to life. And I felt really compelled to help people funnel the magnitude of these juxtaposed conflicting emotions. And so you jumped in on the class and you've been there for most of the Tuesdays. And so I want to talk a little bit about the writing and the words and the expression to help get through for you personally what what that meant and what that was and what you've been discovering through writing now. This whole new world has come coming back and the writing has been beautiful. It's been deep and heartfelt and rich and interesting. And there's so much there. Let's talk a little bit about the words. Like, so how did that all come into your realm of healing? Well, first and foremost, I, I just have to say, I continue to be so profoundly grateful that you elected to create this opportunity for so many different, you know, um, friends of friends of friends, you know, to come together and have this safe space to land. For me personally, um, before joining the workshop, self-expression had always been kind of my my touchstone when I felt vulnerable, when I felt that I needed to, you know, to articulate myself in a way that only art can do, that only writing can do. That for me has, for as long as I can remember, painting and writing has always been that touchstone. And when the world changed, I could not paint. I could not draw. I could not write. It was like I had completely forfeited any inherent, you know, access that I had to something that had always been part and parcel to me. And it was devastating because I kept thinking, how do you articulate something that you've never experienced like this before? There were no words. I could not put to words, you know, what I was experiencing in the midst of, of, of this, you know, new environment. And so when your workshop was created and that invitation was extended, you know, I had a little bit of trepidation because I thought, well, normally I, if I had time to, to take part in a writing workshop, I would be so excited because again, that's, that's another layer of how I express myself. But I was, I was apprehensive because I thought, oh my gosh, I can't even, I don't even know how to write about anything right now. And the way that you had framed the workshop with these you know, writing prompts that really allowed for us to kind of get into this, almost like this meditative state where you're just, you're, you're removing yourself from, you know, kind of the current external environment and you're allowing yourself to just to create and express and, and use that written word as a bit of a, a door to freedom, you know, like it just was, it, it was super cathartic for me and it's, it continues to be um, just a, a really brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, and it's been interesting to see what comes up. We have a really interesting blend of people from all walks of life, some that I don't know in real life that, like you said, friends of friends, but we've had anywhere from about 12 to 18 people any given week with a cast of characters coming in and out based on availability. But the diversity of voices and the depth of which people have dug into their hearts and their souls to find words for things that have been so unnameable has been fascinating and a a huge source of pride. And it's been interesting on some of the prompts, the things that had evoked for you because it brought up memories about growing up uh, the South. Well, I was was born in Alabama and lived in Mississippi um, for a while. I worked in New Orleans at an auction house down there. Um, so I've got this, you know, family dynamic consists of a lot of Southern roots. And then my dad's from 
um, Idaho, many generations deep, you know, farmer, rancher. So there's there's some unique uh, blending of backgrounds that, that exist. And those perspectives were coming through. Yeah. They're really wild. And the what I love is the freedom of when expression feels like it's the last thing you need, it's the one thing that brings you freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the mm-hmm. irony of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I felt like the workshops and through the prompts and I, I started to recognize kind of early on that I, I was developing this pattern of writing that was geared towards these, you know, experiences that I had had, you know, in my youth or with my family in the South and what that meant and, and kind of, I don't know, like working through a lot of emotions and memories that I didn't know that I maybe needed to <laughs> work through. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's like people are, I, I almost feel like Lucy with the five, was it a nickel or right, whatever she right, has? Right. <laughs> I mean, because by the time we're done with the workshop, somebody's a puddle right. on the floor. Somebody has a breakthrough about something. Yeah. I mean, it just happens, but I have seen freedom. I mean, and I tell people this all the time on the other side of fear with writing is freedom. And it sounds like such a cliche, but it's so true. No, it's so it true. only takes one prompt, one memory, one thing to go, oh my God, that's what it was about. Yeah. So we would have these really beautiful epiphanies. And then in the writing group, we get to, what I do is I give a prompt. It could be a word, it could be a photo, it could be anything that I sort of decide. And then people get a few minutes, like five to seven minutes, depending on what it is. And then we reconvene and people share. And I'm always blown away. But I really appreciate reading yours after you post them because hearing them is beautiful and lovely and they've got a cadence and a poet poetry to them. But I really do love going back and reading them. And that's the thing, you know, you see the world, I don't want to say similar to the way I see the world, but you imagine the world so similarly to me, which not a lot of people do with words. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that has always been, I think that that element of creative connectivity for me is just that visualization of what I'm wanting to say and how to craft that in a way that those words then can create that, that picture, you know, as richly as I could hope to paint it. And your words are the paintings. I mean, that was one of the breakthroughs that we had had is using words as written paintings. Yeah. And looking at those. Yeah. You know, and it's funny too, because in during one of our uh, sessions, you had mentioned uh, the process. There were a couple of our you know participants that were talking about, um, you know, the writing process and how it can feel, you're making time for it and what that looks like. And I had never before thought of how I viewed the painting process and how I would, I viewed the writing process so differently. So when I paint the act of painting is is just as joyous to me as the even more so than the finished product you know exactly there would be times when you know when writing felt like more laborious than than painting would you know but it was you mean shower tile doesn't have to be cleaned (laughs) (laughs) and so I appreciated you know your your um you know, just your, I think I had messaged you, messaged you that night and said, you're like a Sherpa. You're like a literary <laughs> Sherpa that's leading us towards, you know, this mountaintop of fulfillment, you know, yeah. where we can, you know, really get to the heart of how we want to express ourselves and what that process looks like. And, and that notion of showing up for you, you know, again, I, I, I know that that has resonated for a lot of people in the workshop and it certainly has for me. Um, and it's taken on a broader sense too of I think the original intent, you know, this notion of, hey, you know what? If you, if you, if you, you know, put pen to paper, if you start writing, you know, right now, if this is something that means something to you, then you need to show up and do it. And that that element of showing up for you started to not only make sense to me in terms of being an active writer, but also showing up for me if I'm tired and I need to take a nap, I'm gonna show up for me and make that happen you know if I need to do laundry even though that's not a sexy thing to do if I need to show up and do that for me like I'm gonna do it and so it's kind of that's great in a bit of a broader context which I've I've really appreciated that's really nice to hear because I don't I don't really know how what I put out there lands none of us does right and so when you create a painting or when you write something or anytime you express anything even at the auctions when you're doing your thing up there 
getting people to dig in. You don't know how your words impact them, how they go home and how they write a check or how they get involved or how they donate or how they volunteer. And I think that's the beautiful thing about expression, which I I totally get that you get, is that the expression is the thing that will, it's not about the change, it's about what it sets into motion. And there's a difference. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. It's a fine line between being and doing. And one of the things I talk about all the time in the workshops is the showing up for yourself. By that, what I mean when I talk about that is you can have something you want to write about or something you think about, but there's a million reasons why people don't want to write. They're afraid. They're afraid to be seen. They're afraid to be heard. They're afraid they're going to be judged. They're afraid of the red pen that haunts them from Mrs. Kaufman in their (laughs) high school class. (laughs) You know, know, there's always something bearing down that stops people. And the thing is, is if you can find these opportunities small to get out of the way in such a way that you are showing up and you're there. And I, I tell people this all the time. I promise if you keep showing up, the words that you have in you will find Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And I think that that has proven to be, I mean, I don't mean to sound like it's a prophetic statement, but I think that the way that you have shared that with those that are participating in, you know, this first session of the workshop, I think it is, it has come to fruition like time and time again. And I think that everyone that's participated has become acutely aware of it to the point where they're like, oh my God, she was right. You know, and like, <laughs> like the, 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 you know, just the, the joy that, that I think each, each person that's participating in the workshop has been able to experience those aha moments where, you know, they've shared a piece, you know, during the workshop where they've shared it in our, you know, our, our writing group online. And there's this, this moment where they're like, that felt really good. I know it's so crazy and it's it's beautiful to see that taking shape for everybody it's it's that's the other thing is because we are community people and we've created a community and that part has been pretty awesome to see everybody else light up and to see them in their glory I mean I that means more to me than me being the center of it I love seeing what everybody else is doing and how they're showing up for themselves and what that what that internalized and and means to them because i think at the end of the day the journey of our lives and discovery and of ourself is just ex- exploration and for part of that is expression you cannot explore without expressing there's just those two go hand in hand well said yeah absolutely yeah, you do that with your photos and your writings. I mean, and that, that's what I connect to, I think, you know, so much as well, you know, when you capture these moments and you articulate what you're experiencing as you share these beautiful photographs that you've taken, you know, not only with our workshop community, but, you know, just on a, you know, a broader scale through social media, I, I just find such pleasure, you know, when I see your posts come up because I know that there is a moment that you've captured that um, is so clearly identified in the, the 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 tone of your heart and your writing that that I just like it feels just so um, beautiful to experience every time. And I'm glad that somebody gets it because <laughs> <laughs> we never know. I mean, I know you know I do know that I that I have a, an ability to connect, and I'm uh, sort of shy and sort of proud about that at the same right. time. I mean, it's part of like seeing yourself. Yeah, That's part of seeing myself is recognizing that the words or the images can connect with somebody and being able to receive that is also an important part of the whole form of expression. I think that's a very deep part of the expression because how can you see yourself if you're not willing to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's funny... I, I, I don't share this very often and it might come as a surprise to most people, but I'm, I'm um, uh, quite intensively a forced extrovert. And so, you know, even with my occupation, like that requires, you know, a certain level of preparation to kind of put myself into that frame to be interacting to the scope and scale that I need to you know, I could see that with though. other people. I... And so with art, you know, there's, there's that removal where I can kind of hit it at a pace that feels a little bit more feasible for me. You know, I've got a little bit more control over how I'm, I'm extending, you know, kind of that connection. 
I, that totally makes sense to me. And I think who we are in the world doesn't always mean who we are to ourselves. I mean, especially yeah. professional stuff. So with auctioneering, what does that show you about yourself when you're up there? Let's say there's a room full of, let's go with like 600 people. That's about a right average size of a big auction. And you're raising, what's what's a, an appropriate number of money that you might raise for an organization? Um, half a million. Half a million. You know, okay. I work with group to a degree, all shapes and sizes across the country. Um, most of them, you know, there, there might be a couple of, of organizations that um, I really, you know, celebrate and, and am fond of their mission and they, um, you know, are, are, are generating, you know, maybe a hundred thousand or, or less, but I'd say on average, most of the um, events that we're, we're participating in are, you know, maybe a little under half a million. Um, and it's, it's funny when you said, you know, room of, of 600 people for whatever reason, I don't know if this goes back to kind of just this notion of like being a forced extrovert. I would rather stand on a stage in front of a thousand people and participate, you know, in a call to action than I would want to sit in a boardroom with 10 other people. <laughs> I know, <laughs> like, I, get, I get it. I, there's a, there's an element of anonymity that, that, you know, you can kind of remove yourself from. Um, I don't know, from from what's transpiring and kind of uh, share and activate in a different way um, when this when the scale and the scope of the audience is larger. So that feels um, much more comfortable to me than smaller, smaller scale event, which has been uniquely challenging moving into these virtual events, because that's myself and the camera operator and <laughs> maybe, maybe one or two other people, you know, on staff helping to produce these events. Count your shoes as a guest. Right, right. Because <laughs> you always have some fabulous shoes. <laughs> but if you imagine yourself, you don't have to name names of the organization, but just give me an example of one of the biggest events you've done in terms of how much Money, what is the scope in the room? And I want to talk about what goes on at an event like that for you inside. So yeah. give me an, give me a number of guests and money expectation. There's a couple of national uh, organizations or foundations that I work with. One in particular um, would host a, an annual convention, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people in attendance. Okay. Some of the biggest A-list bands and performers mm -hmm. in attendance um, with a very uh, tight timeline an expectation yeah. almost equivalent to what you'd feel like to be, you know, the uh, Super Bowl halftime, like everything right. needs to happen when it needs to happen. And, and your scripting needs to be tight and your, you know, interaction with the audience has to be within a certain time frame. Um, right. And th the expectation of, you know, the funds that need to be achieved and the amount of time that it can be achieved, which sometimes is preposterous, you know, partnership right. <laughs> um, is, it can be, you know, pretty, pretty intense. But at the same time, like with anything, if you're, you know, an athlete or a performer or um, uh, whatever that thing might be that requires your adrenaline to kick in and you are focused to be ultimate, you know, right. and, and, and so streamlined that, that takes over and there's, um, time stands still it's such a weird thing my husband is a snowboarder I snowboard too but he's like you know was sponsored and he's just really really good and he would talk to me and when we first started dating about how when he'd you know be in the half pipe and he'd be doing tricks that time would would flash for him and kind of little sound bites that everything would just really slow down and he wouldn't think of anything other than those those moments and when I'm in those heightened awareness moments, there is nothing that exists other than that moment. It's funny because it's the only time, it's almost like yoga. Like I know some people get really, you know, can can kind of hone in and, and, and have that, that state where they're only thinking about that moment. But for me, when I'm in those high adrenaline events and a lot is required of me, I'm only thinking about what I need to do in that moment. And it's just tiny little snapshots and time slows down and I can. It's poetry in motion because I've seen it. And for me as an outsider, to me, it seems like being an effective auctioneer requires more than just enthusiasm, more than focus. Uh, it could be like an athlete preparing to see what it's like to throw the ball into the end zone. I mean, you've got a goal in mind. It's a very clear goal and you're sitting there with people in the dark. You don't see their faces and just paddles and you're asking them for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, it, you know, I mean, I, I would just imagine 
and you're using the words and you're trying to find the thing to create the connection, you're feeding off the energy of people you can't see. There's probably so much going on. Do you feel the pressure and the expectation of hitting the dollar amount? Or are you thinking about the mission of the organization and feel like, how do you get into that mind space? What goes through your head? Yeah, it's definitely all of the above. You know, I mean, there's, there's profound expectation to execute, you know, the financial goals that are associated with the event. Profound. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's pretty intense and um, expectations that are, you know, organizations are hoping that you'll meet on behalf of the donors that are contributing, you know, on behalf of the uh, donors that are, are, are participating in the moment of giving or the appeal expectation of articulating the organization's message so that you can be that ambassador for their um, their cause, you know, for the night. Yes. So yes. there's there's so many different layers to it, you know, and as you mentioned, you know, with the paddles being raised and you're trying to communicate with an audience, for the most part, like when I was mentioning that time kind of slows down, you know, we we intentionally try to set the lighting in a certain way so that I can in some way, shape or form be able to decipher who is in the audience because I have had to have conversations with the organization about who they anticipate that might be interested in a certain package. And I'm supposed to be kind of developing a bit more of a rapport with them and encouraging them to bid a little bit more on the package while still maintaining, you know, those professional boundaries, Um, you know, wanting to encourage people to give more as opposed to pressuring them in a way that might feel cumbersome. You know, there's a fine line and you have to know how to read people. And that's another thing that comes into play, you know, is just kind of the notion of body language and the psychology of, that human interaction, if I see, you know, a couple that's bidding on a package and all of a sudden the physical dynamic of their body language together starts to shift and it appears as though one person wants the package, but the other person in the relationship doesn't, you know, how do you navigate that? And you've got to have just expedited ability to kind of think on your feet and be able to think about all of those factors that have been requested of you by your your client, you know, of the numbers that need to be hit and the people that are interested in the package and the, the, you know, content that needs to be plugged. And, and there's just, there's a lot that needs to transpire in, in just a short little, you know, segment of time. The word that comes to my mind is decorum. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you learned how to do this from your father. He's, he's an auctioneer. Well, it's funny. I grew up in an auction family. We had an auction house that had uh, weekly auctions, antiques and collectibles and pots and pans and you know, the, the, the gamut of household goods and, and what can you decipher junk from the goods? Oh, or does yeah. It oh yeah. <laughs> I bet you could. I'm oh, taking you through goodness. shopping with me. I'll, I'll, I can hang with, with, with the pickers any day of the week. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, that would be a really beautiful byproduct. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> shit, have, put that back. You don't want that. Yeah, you don't need that, but you want to take this. Um, yeah, I grew up doing, doing that. And I always worked on the back end of the auction. My dad, you know, would always, try to be encouraging of me to, hey, you know, hop up on the auction block at the next auction. Let's, you know, why don't you start practicing? This is a great business to get into. And I had no interest at all. Again, I was super shy, no interest at all in getting on an auction block in front of, you know, 200 people at an auction house and connecting with people that way. I I was more engaged with the merchandising of everything because we'd set- Is it more of a male dominated profession too? Oh yeah, oh yeah. uh, Not until- early 2000s, there wasn't more than 5% of auctioneers that were women. Um, And so yeah, I had no interest in it wanted to get my degree in fine art, be a practicing artist. And so I went to school and got my degree in fine art and was a practicing artist for a while. And then um, some just, you know, life happens and some shifts in my family dynamics Some health issues with my dad had taken shape with his diagnosis of MS, Mm -hmm. quit my job here in Portland and moved back to Idaho for the summer so I could help them kind of downsize their home and the farm and consolidate things. And while I was there, I just thought, you know, maybe I should think about going to auction school. I could, you know, work at an antique and art auction house and still kind of merge two passions together. And so I went to auction school and uh, came back to Portland with the intention of working again in art and antiques and uh, got connected with a fundraising auction house here in Portland and went to my first fundraising auction here in Portland for SEI. 
um, oh, God. With, with that event. But for those that might be listening that, that haven't attended an SEI event before, you know, they, they would annually pull in, you know, that's self-enhancement Inc. Self-enhancement Inc. Yeah. Pull yes. in, you know, three, $4 million at a fundraising auction, you know, in early 2000. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to be doing. I had served on, you know, boards of nonprofit organizations in the past and had always been interested in community-based uh, work. And so this was the chance to maybe expand on, on what I loved about the auction industry and maybe get into that arena. So long story short, I went back to school focused on fundraising more specifically. And um, 17 years later, here, here we are. Any idea of how much money you've helped raise? I, I keep track of everything. We, we have accountants that work with us on every event. And so I've um, over the years have have garnered boxes and boxes of recording sheets and we're uh, over 275 million in, in funds raised the last seven 275 million dollars this girl right here <laughs> it's pretty badass it's that's a feels, lot of that's a lot of services that's a lot of meals for hungry people that's a lot of medical services for people in need that's a lot of books for kids who need yeah. them to read I mean yeah. you know that's that's huge. It's it's really rewarding work. I feel very lucky to to get to do what I do and and partner with these amazing organizations that every day are striving to you know make our community stronger and create create change for that better tomorrow, which is pretty needed. And if you weren't doing this, and we're not talking about the current condition of the world, we're not talking about all the limitations. We're talking just purely blue sky. What would you be doing? would still be an advocate, you know, in some way, shape or form, you know, I, if I wasn't doing this, I think I'd find ways to be doing this, you know, in, in some way, <laughs> but still, you know, but p- painting and writing, I'd, I'd be doing a lot more writing. Um, and You've got a couple of books in you, by the way. Oh, thank you. I, I hope you can help me to bring them forth. <laughs> I've decided you have at least two. So yeah, doing more writing, but um, but definitely, I I feel so drawn and called to, you know, advocating um, for for causes that I think are important and are part of humanity rising. That is something that speaks to me on a like a cellular level that I can't even describe. Um, in the same way that art and writing does. I mean, to be honest, they're they're all kind of a a three-legged stool. (laughs) What do you think people need to become activated right now? And I'm not talking about whether they're asleep or on one side or completely angry and pitchforked on the other. Uh, What do you think people need right now to to just become activated? That's a really good question. And and I'm just speaking from experience, you know, within my professional arena, the the arena of, of auctioneering, in the auction industry tends to be uh, leans a bit more conservative. So Mm -hmm. I have a bit of a unique perspective in my kind of professional um, Mm -hmm. social media arena of seeing a lot of different polar opposite opinions right now from Mm -hmm. those that are activated perhaps on one end of the spectrum or another. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of people out there right now that are already feeling activated and amped, but I think that there are a lot of people out there that aren't taking as many opportunities as we all could be listening more to each other. You know, and I think that through just pausing and kind of really being present to, um, you know, the, the, the varying perspectives that are out there, the varying calls to action that are out mm-hmm. there that might not be inherently in alignment with what you grew up with or what you deem to be true, you know, to, to just take, take some time to, to not to table your, you know, the activity that you already feel brewing and that activism that you already feel brewing, but just to pause and kind of reflect and make sure that you're, you know, activating in the direction that you need to be, you know? That's what I was just thinking when you said that. It's like, what are you activated for? Yeah. That to me is, and that's subjective. Totally. Of course. So that's interesting too. And I also like that you said part of being activated is actually just listening. And that's a very non-active thing. And I think the word, when I think of activated, I mean, move to do something to help humankind. Mm-hmm. But 
I could see how activated would also be taken out of context in like, or not out of context. It could be taken in the way that people are like, just charged, (laughs) you know, aggressively charged for some reason. And I think I mean it in the terms of just helping humanity. Yeah. Because you've seen a lot of really good people do a lot of really good things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, there's, um, I think that we all innately have within us, you know, this want and need to not only better our own lives, but in some way, you know, better the lives of others. And so when I say that, you know, I think that it's helpful for everyone to just pause and kind of listen to what's needed. Um, You know, there's certain do-gooders that, you know, that, that find uh, that, you know, maybe perhaps they're activated exclusively by, you know, their religious beliefs, you know, and that that might be activating, you know, their, their sphere of, of interaction, but, you know, perhaps it might not necessarily be beneficial to other spheres of influence or, yeah, I mean, in the list of those scenarios could go on and on. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have like, you know, the, the direct answer, but for me personally, you know, I, I think that, you know, anybody that's wanting to, to, you know, activate and explore ways to better, you know, um, our communities and celebrate that notion of humanity rising is to just kind of you know, pause and listen to what your community's needs are. Um, Every community is different. You know, there's some communities that are experiencing severe food insecurity right now. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the pandemic aside or not, you know, there's some communities that, um, you know, are really um, in need of the um, housing and, 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 uh, services that are available for homeless and transitional populations and and Mm -hmm. others that maybe kind of have a better handle on that. And so just, you know, wherever you're at, you know, you can make change. It doesn't have to be a huge, you know, um, a huge breakthrough. It can be, you know, in small, um, small strides that end up having, you know, a pretty profound, endless ripple effect. And so to just really listen to what, you know, the needs of your community are and what the needs of, you know, your heart speak might be and find a way to merge the two together. Yeah, I feel that. I do. I feel that. I think even with these little writing classes that we're doing, I mean, I've seen how it's rippled just throughout our own little community. And there was a story somebody sent me one time about, it was an African folklore about the hummingbird. There was a forest fire. Do you know this? (laughs) There was a huge forest fire and all the animals were kind of fleeing and standing around. And then this little hummingbird, of course, it has to be a hummingbird, right? Goes and gets a little bit of water and then goes and, you know, tries to put out the fire and everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, I'm doing, you know, I can't not do. Yeah. So I think we get overwhelmed sometimes by the notion that it doesn't make a difference. But my philosophy is that you never know what difference it's going to make and you're never going to make a difference if you don't do something. So well said. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So one more thing. Uh, What's one thing that you're looking forward to short term? Short term, looking forward to, well, my daughter broke her leg this May (laughs) and it's not a funny thing. I'm not laughing about having it happen, but I know I've shared many conversations with you, you know, on the side of just kind of the, the, the difficulties of, of, um, that fall for her, for, for her personally, and just kind of navigating through physical space in our house. And so I'm looking forward to her. Um, having her boot and being able to to walk a little bit more. I know it's going to make her happy to have a little bit more independence and that will bring a lot of joy to our household. So short term, I'm very <laughs> looking forward to that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. And I mean, it's, that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. And I'm sure she's just as independent and curious as you are. Yeah, no, absolutely. But on, you know, that in terms of just, you know, this, this experience, I'm looking forward to hugging friends again. I am looking forward to wrapping my arms around people that I hold dear and hugging the hell out of them. I'm looking forward to that immensely. Yeah, that's a beautiful, I can see that. I I would imagine when you're so used to being around people in environments where they are hugging and expressing affection and connection and love in that way to not have that would be weird. Yeah. Yeah. We need human contact. We need each other. I know. What are you looking forward to short term? Short term, I have my graduate school residency 
coming up. I'm almost um, over halfway done when I'll get my master's in creative writing. And I think I'm looking forward to what it is I want to write next because I had my book just come out a few months ago, me, myself, and I, and I do have to do a thesis for my graduate school. I'm taking a creative writing path. So I do have to come up with something. So is that a second book or not? I'm trying not to put pressure on myself and I'm looking forward to, I wish I knew, you know, and that's part of it. I got an email from my mentor today. His name is Brandon Shimoda. He's Which I just got his book per your recommendation, The Group on the Wall. I'm really enjoying that. Oh my God. Isn't his writing stunning? It's just absolutely oh, beautiful. I know. It's crushing how beautiful his writing and how well-crafted. Yeah. So I mentored with him for eight months and he's the one who really turned my writing around. He's the one that's been really showing me about the process and the allowance and all. I mean, I learned so much about teaching because of him, but uh, we, I just emailed him the other night. I was like, so sad. I'm like, I wish I could just talk to you. I don't know what I want to do. I haven't figured it out. He goes, you know what, Jana? I think you're just always going to be adrift. This is your MO as a writer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he said it in other words. They were much more eloquent, but it's more about this is the nature of your writing is to always seek, Mm -hmm. which was interesting. I hadn't hadn't really thought of it. So maybe I don't know what I'm going to write next because, so I say to you, you say, what are you looking forward to? I wish I, you know, like, oh, finding out what I'm going to write next, but that may not happen. well, there's beauty in the hunt too, you know, and, and, right. you know, if I were to, to, to take what he said and, and pair it with the beauty I find in your writing and in your, your photography, I mean, I, I, I wonder if you would have those opportunities to capture these stunning moments visually and to write about them so, so beautifully and poetically, if you weren't searching, you know, if you weren't, that's what I think that's what he's saying. For yeah. something. You know, I think there's a lot of beauty in that. I might have to internalize that as an epiphany of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. So this has been great. I really, really am so grateful for your time and oh, for I'm so up. for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah. And we will stay in conversation about words and images. And for people that want to get a hold of you, they can go to your website. It's johnnaleewells.com. Perfect. Yes. Thank and you. you post all kinds of interesting things on there. Thank you for being here, Jana. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Jana. Such a delight to join you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving.